today's read a moment of silence midnight three by sister soldier chapter 32 the negotiation seated at the table arranged as a feast in an alaskan steak and seafood house i am well rested and my mind is clear and sharp this scene however reminded me of the time when i was seated in the back room of an italian restaurant in brooklyn with the good detective a deceitful and filthy man who was up to no good and who wanted to enslave me to his agenda just like back then on that night i am starved and concealing a ferocious hunger with a straight face unlike that night i am not arrested cuffed and beaten or bruised however i am surrounded by suited strangers with the exception of one man he is much wiser and slicker more powerful and deadly than the good detective ever was he has a greater stature and stronger stance and stamina and he is a thousand times more passionate about his cause for deeper blood-related reasons most importantly he is fully capable of carrying out and following up on his threats he has the full authority of the united states military and sees no reason to limit his actions when he is going after what he wants. He is my second wife's father. It is January 1st, 1988. However, I could not pinpoint the exact time. After a mysterious, uncomfortable, and dangerous trip from Rikers that ended in a cliffhanger on a mountain in upstate Buffalo, New York, as well as a cold, copped a ride and a trek through the high snow, ice, and Arctic cold, I have finally fallen asleep. I woke up once to the sound of my own voice calling the azan and in a sleepy haze I fell back asleep through the attic window I could see that it was still dark outside and I figured I was dreaming or bugging because of exhaustion I slept for what felt like several more hours and finally awoke it was still dark so I imagined that I had not actually slept for long It was only much later that I found out that the darkness was due to a storm that made it seem that the sun would not rise at all. So I had actually slept very well through my normal routine times and prayer times and eating times. It ended up being about 10 hours of rest. I had fallen asleep with a growling belly while reading the first chapter of Chiasa's manuscript. Her words ripped off the armor I had layered my mind, body, and soul with for nearly two years. 
her words demolished the freeze in my bones and they heated my cold, hardened heart. Her words had ignited my desires, the same deep desires that I had controlled, conquered, and canceled during my caging. Her words forced me into a deep sleep and an erotic dream. I woke up bricker than brick, my joints so solid and swollen it wouldn't lay down for an extended amount of time. It would not settle for anything less than her touch. The pushing and plunging and pleasure of her. A tight but warm and moist space where we expressed our mutual love. I was fucked up. I knew I needed to recover my discipline, restraint, and alertness. I needed to collect my composure and restore my warrior stance for the possible approaching threats and realities. After all, I was in an unknown space riddled with unanswered questions. The most severe ones were regarding my legal status. Am I a prisoner or am I a fugitive? Is there a warrant for my arrest? Is there a manhunt underway for my capture? As I had laid on my back on a mattress on the floor, dressed with sheets that carried her scent in her room, in a house made of stones surrounded by nothing but snow and ice and the wilderness, I wondered, was I rescued? Am I free? Could a daughter's subtle demand to the father who adored her actually cause a powerful man to deploy his trucks, helicopter, arsenal, and assassins? And if she was the trigger, what would happen next? How far would her father go and how far had he gone so far beyond what I could possibly see or know or imagine? Before I could decode the past 24 hours, I heard the rumblings of a hummer. I leaped up, then watched through the window. As soon as I confirmed that it was her father, the general, arriving alone in the vehicle, I dropped down from the secluded space where she had her clothes, blanket, and books, her bed, desk, and dresser, and her writings, and hardly anything else. I securely closed the lid that sealed it and removed the ladder, pushing it into a side room. I didn't know if her father normally came here or if he was aware of her manuscript. He was a man who their family was normally very discreet about never mentioning his name or his title and ranking or even taking or hanging his photographs. But in the side room, I saw men's clothing. Was it his? I didn't have time to check. I was in the washroom, washing my face and hands and rinsing my mouth. I saw a razor for shaving. My jaw and my chest got tight. I slipped out the blade and cleaned it off. Instinctively, I'd carry it on me. Then he knocked on the door with the heavy hand of the police or the military during a raid. Grabbing the snorkel, which had my gloves and wool hat tucked in each coat pocket, I put it on over the black jumper that I had fallen asleep in. I stepped into my boots and headed outside. He had gotten back in the Hummer, 
and was seated behind the wheel. He lowered his window when he saw me approaching. We have an appointment. Let's go, son, was all he said, casually, as though he had just chilled with me the day before. But, in reality, he had last seen me two years ago. I climbed in. Jump in the back and get dressed. I did, surprised to see the dress clothes hanging in the rear on the hook. I was clean-shaven, head and face, but my body was not showered. His Mickey Thompson Baja claw tires were crushing everything in their path. Only the hum of his engine could drown out the rumble of my hunger. Fully dressed, I decided to remain seated in the back. Through the rearview mirror, he locked eyes with me and said, You are not naive, son, are you? You know the rules of war. I stayed still and silent, thinking, Happy New Year, was all I said to him. I knew better than to utter one word that could be used as a one-word agreement to any of his ideas, plans, or schemes, then, now, or later on. So, you are the general's son. Pleased to meet you. A well-suited European woman in her 30s, introduced as Ursula, said as she sipped from her water glass. I know, fathers are demanding and rarely compliment their sons, so I'll have to say that your performance on the SATs was outstanding almost perfect. They were above the scores of our average students, which is quite high, and equivalent to the scores of our top three students in a class of 120. Indeed, a dark blue-suited white man who had been introduced as Roy said, we are excited to have recruited you and are fully prepared for you to enter our academy next week after the holiday break. And because of the preeminence of your father, we have all assembled here on the great holiday. Fortunately for us, it's late afternoon. Otherwise, we may have had to disappoint your father after a night of cheers. They all laughed. You already look like a soldier. An older white man introduces Tom, commented. You are already as silent as an elite global soldier must be. So true, the dark-suited Roy said. Normally, such silence is achieved only after our specialized training. The fact that you are already silent has me feeling a little less necessary. They each laughed. It's either that or he has some ominous secret to hide, he added. Nonsense, the European woman said. Look who his father is. He obviously has been in training for years. Then she turned towards me and said, There is no need for you to feel burdened. Only the top brass gathered around this table will know your roots. And we won't tell a soul, she promised. We don't want the other students to feel that you're getting preferential treatment. 
He may be advanced in his training already, which is excellent since he is entering the academy in the second semester of our school year, which is rarely ever allowed. However, he won't be spared any of the workload that he has missed. Therefore, he will have to forfeit his summer leave. He will also need to polish up on his social skills. He had to have suffered from being homeschooled and studying for his SATs all alone and earning his GED in place of attending full classes with qualified instructors and bonds of friendship and team spirit and of course, the godforsaken high school prom. Simply trying to get a date to that damn thing is a social experiment, Tom said, and they laughed. No worries, Ursula said. Our school is co-ed and international and Switzerland is quite lovely. Our host country is famous for chocolate and you are a very handsome young lad, if you don't mind me saying so. Back in the blacked out black Hummer, plowing through the storm, dark roads, he had his huge hand gripping the stick shift tightly. What I really wanted to ask him was the whereabouts of my wife. I knew that he knew that she is my great love and deep desire. Also, his only daughter, his ace card, and the only reason me and him were together and that I was riding shotgun with a military man. I knew he would attempt to convert my love and my desire for his daughter into my weakness. So, I didn't mention her. I only asked, where are we headed? You'll see. We pulled up to a checkpoint, which ended up being the entrance to a military base. The signage said, Fort Drum. Each soldier who encountered him saluted, shuffled, kowtowed, and all but bowed down. He was riding from building to building, getting his holiday greetings, salutes and reports, and showing me without words spoken directly to me that he was in command. I already knew that. Seeing tanks and guns and grenades and stockpiles of ammunition sealed his performance. His last stop on his power tour was a dormitory building on the base. He ordered a soldier on post outside to go in and bring out Private Crusher. The big white boy soldier came running out, then straightened himself as soon as he saw the general seated in the Hummer. He saluted and then approached with permission. He leaned in on the driver's side and asked what he could do for the general. Take a look at this guy. You think you could take him for a few rounds? The general asked him. He glanced over at me. That's why they call me the crusher, he said. They laughed. I didn't. Easily I'd fight him. I'm not military trained, but these guys weren't street fighters. Didn't come straight out of Rikers and probably would never survive if they did. 
What do you say, son? The general asked me. Anytime, I said solemnly, Whoa, let's go. Let's ring in the bloody new year, the crusher said. Not tonight, the general intervened. He's got other things to do tonight. I just swung by so you could see your next challenge and get prepared. I'm the champ that whooped that big boy over in Little Siberia, General. I'm already prepared. This guy was excited, hyped up like he just shot up steroids. You're dismissed, Private, the General said. Crusher left in an instant. I grabbed that guy out of the jaws of Little Siberia. You know where that is? The General asked me as he did a 180 and drove off the base. Nah, I said, that's the prison where you were supposed to go last night. Danamora, maximum security Clinton Correctional Facility, a place where the worst sons of bitches in the region are housed and conquered, but never corrected. He was looking straight ahead, so was I. Just remember that during our negotiation, he said suddenly. Negotiation, I repeated, really to myself. The one you and I are about to have, he said. We rode in silence after those words. My mind was heavy. There were too many X factors. I needed to line up my thoughts before the negotiation. I began to do so for my own good. His daughter is my wife. I won her hand in marriage from him fair and square. He hadn't faltered on his debt to me or on his word, although I always felt his reluctance, his presence, and his attempt to continue to control her from afar. That may have been annoying, but it wasn't terrible or evil, I told myself. His daughter loves me, I know. She will follow me wherever I go and whatever choices I make, even if she disagrees with me. She will yield and give way. Only in an instance where something conflicts with her faith would she fight and resist. I never go against her faith. Her faith is my faith. On the one hand, I have the general by the neck because I have his daughter, but why should our marriage be a problem to him? Is it only her conversion to Islam that he finds so disturbing? And now that it is clear that his daughter will be Muslim whether I'm dead or alive, he had to realize that he can't get her to roll back to whatever it was they used to believe in or do as a way of life. What does he want from his daughter? What does he want from me? chess game, both opponents have the comfort of knowing how each piece can and cannot move. Both the black knight and the white knight are limited to the same options, and that goes for the king, queen, rooks, and bishops also. Life, however, is not like that. It's random hostile and impulsive, you can't sleep on any man because no man is a game piece. The weakest and most frightened man might do the most unexpected, 
deadliest and horrific thing. He obviously wants me to attend some academy in Switzerland, I thought further. That's what I had gathered as I sat in complete silence at the dinner table. My objective was only to listen and consume an expensive meal in an expensive restaurant where the prices were not printed on the menu. Was that his method of separating his daughter and me by distance? Or did he and his sister Aunt Tasha and their whole family believe that if I didn't start racking up the degrees the way they had, that I needed to be cut out from Chiasa and their family like a cancer? Or was it worse? Is my Islamic lifestyle so unacceptable to them that they needed to see me humiliated in order to feel comfortable around me and comfortable around Chiasa? Is this some deep-seated jealousy? True, I had knocked out a guy at their family barbecue in the vineyard, but he deserved it. A friend to Xavier, he had tried to kick it to my first wife, asking her to dance and touching her hand after she said no. To coax her to accept his offer, I dropped him. Had to let them all know that both women belong to me by marriage and choice, theirs and mine. I love Chiasa, true. She is your relative, true, but still, don't fuck with my first wife because I love her, true. They thought that I was cocky even though I had cooperated and showed up to Clementine Moody's all-male family breakfast very early that same morning to squash the beef between Marcus and me. I was quiet and humble. I shook hands with Marcus even though he had tried to stab me in the back before and had actually stabbed me in my chest inches above my heart. But at the late afternoon big blowout barbecue, male and female, family and friends and vineyard neighbors gathered. As soon as I arrived with my beautiful Uma covered in her summer light sparkling fabrics and my two beautifully modest wives and little sister, I felt all eyes on me. The men watched me thinking I was too brazen. It felt like my everyday lifestyle and my wives were getting them green with envy and red with fury while they fronted it off, glancing and gossiping while flashing fake smiles. I remember Marcus had Chiasa captivated by his fireworks, a suitcase filled with stink bombs, firecrackers, nigger chases, sparklers, M80s, and other holiday explosives. I was chilling in the shade sipping a lemonade when I saw the dude looking, then approaching Akimi as she stood watching the dance steps intently and admiring the art of the gathering. They think I'm violent. I think they're uncivilized. They think they are higher ups. I think they are spiritual lows. If they could separate me from my women and infiltrate their minds, they would. But because my women are loyal, there was absolutely nothing they could do to break it. It was sad and funny to me. Their women 
of all ages from very young to senior elders were at that big barbecue event, most uncovered and nearly naked. Why focus on my wives? Covered and true. So my standing with my second wife's family before my lockup was left on shaky grounds. But now, I was faced with a larger dilemma. The general might have gotten me freed at his daughter's demand, but if he got me out and off without me becoming a fugitive on the run or the most wanted, I understood that I owed him something, even though I did not ask him to do it. Could have served out my time and come home in a year and a half at the same time If I am free now without doing the rest of my time, of course I gotta be grateful. My praise goes to Allah, of course, but in the physical world, I paid my debts, fair and square as well. What about all the men I left behind at Rikers? What about the ones who were waiting for me to drop a line and let them know my whereabouts? What about the handful of people who would be following up to check on me? Like my lawyer and Santiago, who would wait for news of my release. And Ditch, who was also sent to Little Siberia. What about Daquan at Greenhaven and his newsletter that kept all of us aware and connected? And Deshaun at Sing Sing. My second wife had been asked three questions by her father. According to her manuscript, he had asked her, Do you understand that he murdered a man and how serious a crime that is? And he asked her, Why should I go out of my way to bring him home before he serves his time with the other convicted murderers and criminals? Chiasa, clever and swift, had replied softly, And how many men have you killed, Daddy? Shall we count them? Or are there too many to count? And doesn't it matter that he was defending his sister? Or would it have been better if he was killing for pay, just obeying orders because it was his occupation and without any other real consideration or right reason? Daddy... I'll bet there are bodies buried beneath every metal on your chest, aren't there? But if you were somewhere suffering, like I feel my husband is suffering, it would be unbearable to me, the same as I have waited for you my whole life, I can wait for my husband, but the thought of the element that he is in and the conditions that he's enduring is unbearable for me. And of course, he is different than almost all of the men he might be locked up with. He is my husband. When I met him, he had already made 20,000 more prayers than me. Before I met him, I had never made even one. He had already fasted for nine Ramadans. Now, he has fasted for 11. 
He is so good and so beautiful. He is better than me. He loves and lives for his family and he loves me a whole heap, maybe more than you do. He would do anything for me, even give up his life. Won't you do what I ask of you? He has another wife, the general had reminded her. As I read, it felt like it was his last desperate attempt to alter her allegiance to me. Yes, she is his wife, and she's my wife too, my co-wife. I doubted that the general had read her manuscript. Now that I think about it though, perhaps he was aware of its existence. Perhaps she had used it with the accuracy and precision of her knives and hit the bull right in his eye, so to speak. Perhaps she had threatened him with it after a lifetime of his not being photographed and under the protection of his family to keep everything concerning him private. He must have wanted to stop the autobiography of the general's young daughter from being published. Maybe it pushed him to the point that at the threat of losing his daughter's loyalty, he felt the shame of abandoning Marcus, his son. Maybe I was somehow ruining his do-over. off-road vehicle, road rugged off-road. We maneuvered over ice and rocks and sticks and even veered around a massive elk. After a bit of a journey, we arrived at a miniature oddly shaped log cabin in the wilderness. There was a jeep already parked there below the towering trees. Again, I had no idea what was going on. He climbed out of the Hummer. I followed. I observed that the tiny place had a weird chimney. It was just a pipe popping out through its roof. The smoke was pouring upwards and then dispersed by the intensity of the cold air. A woman, maybe about 22 years young, opened the door and stood in the doorway. She wore a colorful kimono with no socks or stockings or anything to shield her from the cold. As we entered, I realized that she was wet, but seemed unfazed by the intermingling of two extremely different temperatures. She rushed us into the warmth. Happy New Year, she said enthusiastically, and in a manner and a tone that led me to believe this was not her first meeting with the general. The cabin ceiling was so low, the general who stood six foot eight, had only two inches remaining above his head. I also was strangely close to the ceiling. She was not. I'll take your coats. You may hang your clothes right there. She pointed out a row of metal hooks lodged in the wall. We both removed our coats and suit jackets. I was following his lead. He began unbuttoning his dress shirt and removing it as well. I paused. Come on, son. When in Rome, do as the Romans. When in Alaska, do as the Eskimos. When in Buffalo, do as the Buffaloes. <laughs> he chuckled. This place is a mookie, 
an Alaskan-style steam bath. You've had a hard run for a long time. You'll need this to extract all that filth from your skin. Even though we were not in Alaska, the general seemed to like Alaskan things. I noted that fact and the possibility that he is either currently stationed there or had been stationed there for some extended period of time. Maybe that's why he was at ease in the buffalo freeze. He was down to only his boxers and about to come out of those. I adjusted my mind. I moved it right past my recent past and beyond the jail and perversities that I never knew or considered existed before going to jail and observing. I settled my mind way back in the Sudan in a memory of my southern Sudanese grandfather. He was a huge black-skinned man, same as the general. Grandfather was blacker than black and shaded even deeper than the general, who was surely black too. In the Sudan, men washed side by side at times in the flesh. It was natural and clean. There were no suspicions or threats or even a remote thought of anything else. Fully naked now, both of us men, the general and me, duck walked to pass through the door that led to the next room, which was only five feet in height. The floor and the ceiling and the walls were all made of wood. We eased out of our duck walk, duck squat, and sat on a long wooden bench facing a wooden stove that was percolating. The metal pipe that sat in the middle of it ran all the way out through an opening in the roof and was so hot it was turning red. In this room, both of our heads were touching the ceiling. Is it too hot for you, son? He asked me. I didn't say anything. I was adjusting, breathing in the moist heat. I felt it swirling in my lungs and was breathing it back out as all of my pores were opening. I knew he was using that statement to have a double or triple meaning. I knew he was trying to break me, get me under his wing and control, not kill me. But I'm from the desert. I'm from the Sudan, land of the blacks, home of the original pyramids even before Egypt, which was previously known as Kemet, the land of the black-skinned pharaohs and the region of the prophets, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, peace be upon them, for those who don't truly know. When it gets too hot for you, lie down, he said. I got this place reserved for two hours. You should be good, clean, smoked, and steamed by then. <laughs> he laughed, and the deepness of his voice echoed. Crouched there on the bench, sweat pushing out of our pores and glazing our faces and bodies and even soaking our toes. He said, let's begin our negotiation. Let's do that, I responded. Even I was eager. I wanted the information, the verdict, 
and the conclusion, I'd rather be beside his daughter, you do realize that you are not in the same position as you were before when you won. And I allowed you to leave Asia with my 16-year-old daughter, he said. Right, I agreed. Purposely brief. You realize that you committed a serious crime, murder, and you are a convict. I was in the middle of serving my time for that conviction when your people came, locked and loaded and interrupted. He turned and looked at me hard and grimaced. Ungrateful. You should be glad my people came and interrupted you. Or did you grow accustomed to living like a beast? I'm not confirmed that you have rescued me. You may have sunk me into a deeper legal problem. Convince me, and while you're at it, please, tell me exactly what you want. He was quiet. As the steam rose, shrouding his face, he looked like a gorilla in the mist. At the same time, he resembled my father, his looks, not his content or his style. Son, call it what you like, but it is what it is. Since you have no negotiation etiquette, I'll give you the harsh bottom line. You are a prisoner of war. Do you know what that means? In this war between you and me, you've lost this battle. You know the rules of war, son? When you lose, you lose something of great value, something precious to you. The best outcome for a loser is that he becomes a hostage, a servant, a slave, or a dead man. He pulled a thick string that caused a bell to ring, then moved off the bench and lay out flat on the floor. The swinging door that separated the steam room from the dressing room pushed open. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed young white woman walked in, completely nude and carrying a bucket filled with some fluid. She used a wooden bowl to scoop the liquid and began pouring it all over the general's body from head to toe. It was water. From his grunting out his relief and pleasure, I knew it was cool to cold water to lessen the intensity of the steam heat. Lay down, son. You gotta learn when to lay down, he said. The wrong timing or the wrong decision could leave you out of breath. As she poured water on him, her eyes were trained on me. I turned from her gaze. I had already seen it all vividly her plump breasts her bald coochie and thighs and feet she's a trick i said to myself his spoonful of sugar to force down the bad tasting medicine he was trying to feed me she left you were purchased son a private corporation purchased your sentence and your servitude and now they own you the door swung back open. The woman re-entered the room with two large paper cups filled with water. She handed one to me and placed the other beside him. If you lie down, I'll gladly soak you in some cool water, she said to me with her eyes and lips. That's enough, the general said to her. She turned and left in an instant, leaving the door in the open position, causing cool air to rush in and lessen the heat. I drank the water. Then my mind was ready. I agree. 
when a man loses a war, he becomes a prisoner or a slave. I wasn't at war with you, though. We both have someone precious in common. The war I was in, I won in a sense because I did what had to be done. I lost in a sense because I got locked up, but I looked at it as me paying the blood price for my actions. My debt to the prison system was three years. That's in writing. I did 17 months. I have 19 months, roughly a year and a half remaining on my debt to the prison system. If a company purchased that debt, which is something I never heard of, I would owe that company one year and nine months of my time, I said. Then I rang the bell and lay down. Good. Now you're negotiating, he said. The naked girl reappeared and began pouring the cool water over me from head to toe. It was a relaxing feeling in a tense time. She left. Your debt was one year and nine months without incident, he said. Incident, I repeated. When your sponsors who purchased you went to pick you up, I am told they encountered an accident. I'm not accusing you of causing the accident. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But whatever the case, the Department of Corrections lost two men and a truck. That's a little messy. Your sponsor's team contacted me, not the local police or prison authorities. In less than 30 minutes, I deployed my team to clean up the scene. That increased your debt, he said, calm and sly. I'm a businessman, I said. I have capital. Talk to me. How much did it cost you, sir? The helicopter ride. We both sat up. He looked like he wanted to knock my head off. The woman came back to refill the drinking water. I was already tied up. It's a holiday, son. Our accountant is adding it up, he said, pleased with himself. The woman got on her knees and began dipping her sponge in the cold water bowl and wiping and patting the general down. When she was done, she left. That wasn't the only mess I had to clean up. There was the matter of cleaning up your identity, separating you from Jordan Mann, making sure he's the convict and you are not. That took time, burned up some of my connections, caused me to use up some favors that were owed to me, and I had to do some favors that I never intended to do as well. Are you saying that legally I'm free, not a fugitive or even a convict? I see you look skeptical. (laughs) Right now, there's a Jordan man serving your sentence. He arrived at Clinton last night, same time you were scheduled to arrive, wearing your clothes, doing your time in your place. My mind raced, although the heat and moisture in the air did slow my thoughts some. Was the prisoner walking downhill, escorted by the guard, the one who was doing time in my place? What about the fact that they already had my blood and urine and fingerprints, I asked swiftly. His profile won't match up with mine, I added. That's the expensive cleanup job that I've been alluding to. That increased my special services and your debt. But those services I already made happen. Although it is not a simple matter to delete one man's records and data and alter another man's records and data, 
My efforts were a success. It turns out that you are going to live well as long as you follow the general's orders and pay the general what you owe him. How much is that? I asked. Tell it to me straight. Five painless years. You go to the school in Switzerland for one and a half years, full time, in fact, overtime, including summer, graduate, and then you serve the remaining three and a half years under contract, he said, scheming. Under contract as what? A member of a secret mercenary army, the elite global organization of soldiers. You won't have to wear the uniform you hate so much. It's a private company. I own it. You will not be a part of the United States military, but you will be under my management and command. I'll contract you out to elite customers and move you to countries all around the world. You'll be highly paid. And when your time is up, you walk away, he said, clapping his hands once and splattering the water in his palms. I'd rather, I began saying, and he interrupted. And now I saw and understood the reason why him and me were naked in a strange steam bath. He needed to have this unexpected, strange, and classified conversation in a place where it couldn't be overheard, recorded, filmed, or reported on, not only because of me and the murder I had committed and been convicted of, but because of the moves, but because of the moves he had already taken that I never requested and that he was now responsible for. Teacher Kareem Ali had given us a clear definition of the word criminal. He said, a criminal is a person, network, or institution business or system that violates and operates and participates in activities outside of the established laws of the legitimate government or recognized governing body of a city, state, country, or territory. According to teacher Kareem's definition, me taking the murder of Lance Polite into my own hands was criminal. At the same time, that definition meant that the general is a criminal and the U.S. military is criminal too. Perhaps that was the reason Ricky Santiago said there is no such thing as a bad man. Because of the system we live in, we all fit the criminal definition perfectly. The only way out of that truth, it seemed, was to change the system completely. But... I am a Muslim man. I believe there are good and bad men, no matter what the situation. Islam is my belief and my way. I thought all these men, including myself, would be better, live better, and do better. If Islam were the rules of law, it's a faith, and the guidelines are clear, and men can work and earn live and love and protect what any right-thinking man wants to protect, his family. In order to do so, though, men would have to gain a discipline and lose something also. Men would have to sacrifice some vices and habits and occupations that do more harm than good, 
humble ourselves and lose something to gain something much better and much greater. Think about it before you speak, son. I'll give you 24 hours to make your choice. And what if I just buy back my freedom, pay you the debt back in cash or gold, I proposed. Not possible. In this instance, the time is worth more than any money you could put together and that I would accept. So, are you saying that I don't have the option to serve out my sentence and be done with this? I asked. Just to be clear, I told you, you are already serving your sentence and then some. And then some, I repeated. Yeah. Right about now, Jordan Mann is seated in the hole and under close scrutiny and investigation. What else could he be? There are two corrections officers who died transporting him to prison, the general said, which translated in my ear as checkmate. What about that man, I asked. Who? The one serving the time as Jordan Mann. Don't worry about him. He's a slave, a prisoner of war paying down his debt, which has nothing to do with you, the general said firmly. If he wasn't paying it at Clinton, he would be paying it elsewhere in another not-so-nice place. In the prison system, son, you are just a body, a number. You're human waste. But he's not me, I said, really at a loss for words. If he causes any mess, he could easily be eliminated in a sudden prison fight. If he interrupts big business, that will be his fate. He is whoever I say he is. Listen, son, when I was your age, I ran into some troubles. I figured out that there were only two sides in this world. Simple. There's the winners and the losers, and they're both heavily armed. I figured out that what makes the winners the winners is that they have authority, a license to hold, a license to kill and get away with it. So, you decide which team you want to be a part of, the winners or the losers. If you're stubborn or stupid, if you swim against the tide or go against the grain, you'll have no support. You'll have opened up a can of snakes, and at least one of them will eat you. He gritted his teeth. Take your time. You have 24 hours, he threatened politely. I had voices streaming through my thoughts. My own voice, the voices of my father and grandfather, teacher Kareem Ali's voice, Santiago's, Daquan's, and the voice of that girl who gave that speech in the jail. Seated in the back of the Hummer, on impulse, I did what she recommended. Check the label, she had said. I pulled down the black jumper I wore this afternoon. I flipped the collar and checked the label. It had the letters HWM embossed on it. The snorkel had the same label and letters, as did the boots, I smiled. When I was on the yacht with Clementine Moody, he had handed me a note on a small notepad embossed with the capital letters HWM, long before my wife had told me that no one knew what her uncle 
uncle actually did for a living. They only knew what he'd done in the past, knitting the facts together, the tiniest sloppy mistakes that paid and powerful men are bound to make because no man is perfect. I got it. Clementine Moody was either the owner of HWM or their highly placed and paid consultant. What does HWM stand for, I asked, suddenly breaking the silence of the ride to wherever was the general's next destination. Human Waste Management. They are your sponsors. How did you know, he asked. That's classified information. Their logo is stamped on this uniform they gave me last night. And the coat and the boots, I said. They're an up-and-coming powerhouse corporation. The privatization of every service available in the world is on the horizon, including the privatization of prisons and the military, and even the privatizing of the individual. That's why I am in the lineup, son. I'm going to remain working high up in the military mainstream. And meanwhile, I'm investing, building and betting on the dark horse. Same as I figured out when I was young, exactly who had the authority to hold and fire their weapons. After a long career, I realized that the endless military budget or trillions of dollars, I needed a cut of that. Not just great benefits and a paycheck. I had put in the work and the time. I had traveled the entire range of the globe, every nook and cranny. I had introduced kings and queens and corporate heads and politicians and military higher-ups and even presidents and prime ministers to each other. Through my efforts and introductions, I had created many multi-million dollar financial business marriages, but only through owning my own company could I get the cut I deserved. I chose what I know, the military, the creation of a global private army. He watched me through the rear view to measure his impact. You know, son, the dark horse will win. (laughs) He sounded like slaughter to me. The HWN Corporation. Is it owned by a black man, I asked. Yes, but he's extremely private. He uses his vice president with dexterity. He's the owner. The VP is the face. The owner is a good guy, though. I've known him for years. Then I knew. The general and his brother-in-law had each formed their own corporations, and they were feeding one another. Moody had come from the hospital industry, while the general was from the military. The two biggest hustles in the world had joined hands, secretly, so secretly that now they were buying and selling humans, their body parts, in individual pieces or their bodies in whole. The American prisons were their playgrounds that stored the inventory known as human waste. The entire globe was their marketplace. 
They were even buying what Allah had gifted us, each of us, in varying degrees, our time on earth. Furthermore, the learned Clementine Moody had the balls to name his business Human Waste Management. I had gotten that feeling from him when I was riding in his yacht. He believed he could do more with people's lives and deaths than people could do for themselves, and he believed that people who were not pursuing Ivy League degrees and the status he achieved were actually waste. I'll come for your decision tomorrow at 1800 hours, the general said when he dropped me back at the Lone Stone House in the cold wilderness. It was almost 10 p.m. Now the lights were on in the house. I saw a man moving through the lighted curtain. This is life, I said to myself. You can't kill every immoral man, I cautioned myself. But if there is a man in there with my wife, he's a dead man. I walked around to the side of the house, sure that wherever or whoever was there heard the hummer roll up over the ice. I heard the door open and feet crushing snow as he stepped out. I walked around front, so swiftly he was startled. Before I could snap his neck, I saw his face. It was Marcus. Seated in her attic bedroom, purposely in the dark, I was behind a wooden pillar and the beam of moonlight. I waited. He told me she would soon come. I told him not to mention that I was here. I wanted to send him out and away, but I did realize that would be too cruel due to the cold, isolated location. Aside from that, he seemed less crazy than before. I'm sure it was the outcome of being in the atmosphere and presence of my lovely wife, his sister, who he had missed out on when he was young. He also told me that he had been working for her, managing her New York vending business. She needed me to deal with the men, he said proudly. I smiled. Turns out he works for me. But I knew he didn't need to hear that. I let it go. I heard a vehicle roll up. I didn't look. She always saw too much. I didn't want to give myself away by appearing in the window or peering through the curtains before I could feel and see her true reaction. I smiled. She is 18 now, had her license, was driving now. Then I heard voices two flights down but couldn't distinguish their words. She didn't run right up, so I guess he kept his word and didn't tell her I was here. Half an hour later, I heard her approaching slowly. It was strange because she was usually so swift. When she finally appeared, she was carrying something on her back. I stood still as a statue. She turned to pull out a dresser drawer, and I saw my baby on her back. Alhamdulillah. My racing heart was beating now like a war drum, so loud... I thought she could hear it. She placed our baby in the drawer after laying a blanket inside of it. She bent over and gently laid the drawer on the floor. 
at the top of her cot. She began to undress. On her blouse, a pendant of gold wings glistened. Badass. She had even become a pilot. Her hair was still wild beneath her hijab. She removed it. It was thick and braided into only two braids, even longer than before. Giving birth had made it grow. I had missed watching all of that happen. Her sculpted shoulders were still exquisite and her back a diamond cut. Her waist was still tiny ballerina and her butt African lovely, still training. She had made that happen. She must still be shooting her bows and arrows. Her arms were lean and tight. She turned around and leaned back against her dresser. Her milk and honey breasts and hips were more beautiful than heaven. If you only knew, she said softly, and tears fell from her smoky gray eyes. You wouldn't tease me by staring from over there. Come over here and love me. Acknowledgement. This time around, I'd like to acknowledge the people, the book readers and book buyers. Please accept my deep appreciation to each and every one of you. Specifically, I'd like to thank every single youth and student who has taken it upon him or herself to ask for, find, and buy my novels, even when your teachers have either refused or failed to assign or provide them to you. Also, I'd like to thank those teachers, principals, and school districts courageous enough to order and buy my books because they are concerned about storytelling that connects to and improves the lives and realities of their student population. Deep appreciation to every librarian who has ordered enough copies of my books to serve their communities. To the financially poor girls and boys who can only afford to check my books out at the library. That used to be me. I'd like to send a heartfelt thank you to the prison population. Those who have purchased, passed around, shared, and discussed my novel in order to create a new understanding and better lives for themselves. Last but never the least, I'd like to thank every father and mother who have handed the midnight novels to their sons and daughters in hopes that they might make better choices and lead better lives than we ever did. Books offer knowledge that make it possible for us to break the negative cycles that we all have become too comfortable accepting. Love, Sister, Soldier. Thank you.